Psalms. The gentlemen are handing out notes uh, as we speak, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna jump in today. We're gonna look at uh, eventually into Psalm 63, which I have Psalm 54, and that's just because I cut and pasted and forgot to change the 54 to 63. So it's not a uh, 54 to 63. We'll be looking at this morning. Um, when we look through the when we've been looking through these psalms, I've really enjoyed personally not just the study in Psalms, uh, but also the study in First uh, Samuel for me personally going going through it. So uh, this morning, as we just quickly catch back up, we won't spend a lot of time doing the review because we go through that history on a weekly basis. Uh, but we do want to spend we're going to spend a little bit more time this morning uh, in the li- parts of the wilderness in First Samuel. And then get over to, to Psalm 63. So as we've talked, Psalm 16, David is anointed king. David slays Goliath. We go through the idea that Saul is in complete insane jealousy, seeking to kill uh, David uh, t- to the point where he's throwing spears at him. He's hunting him down and, and going continually. So David flees, gets out of the land, goes up to, goes, goes to Nob. Uh, there he spends time with Ahimelech. He gets the the showbread. He gets a Goliath spear. And then he leaves and he heads toward Gath into Philistia, Philistine country. There, while he's there, we have Psalm 56 and Psalm 34 when David is captured by the Philistines, but then also when he feigns his insanity toward uh, Achish, uh, Abimelech, uh, the king there. And uh, as, we, as we pick up in that time, we know that David is going to be pushed out of Gath as he's pushed out of Gath uh, by, by Achish, saying, I don't need any more madmen here. Get out, leave. He leaves and he go, heads down toward Moab. You can sort of follow the green line. That's the, the initial route we've just talked about where, where David's going to leave uh, Gibeah and Ramah and go to Nob. He's going to head over to Gath. He's going to take the path down, head toward Moab. There he's going to drop his family off, still in the midst of his difficulties, uh, caring for his family, drops him off in Moab. And he's staying there in the stronghold until Gad the prophet comes to David and says, you need to head back into, leave Moab and head back into uh, Judea or into Judah, the, the area there. So that becomes that orange line that's a little hard to see, but he heads from Mitzpah, heading back up toward Harath, and he's going to be into Kilam or Kila, and then he's going to head back. Uh, in that way. So we know that as we studied last week, he ends up in Keilah. He delivers them from the hands of the Philistines. Keilah is a town in, uh, in the tribe for the tribe of Judah. So he's back in his home territory, David is, his tribesmen. He's delivering them uh, from, the, from the hands of the Philistines. He learns uh, after this time uh, from spending time uh, consulting the man of God, finding out that Keilah is going to betray him to Saul. So David and his men head out. They leave for Keilah and they head toward the wilderness of Ziph. And we're going to be looking at a couple of the different wildernesses here that David, David finds himself in. He heads from Keilah, heads down toward Ziph. While he's there, Jonathan's able to find him. Jonathan's able to minister him despite the inability of Saul to be able to find David. Jonathan does. And this is where we started studying last week. The Ziphites, the, the people of the town of Ziph, the men go to seek out Saul. And they, they're going to betray him and say, hey, David's hiding in our area. He's in this area. He's on this mountain. He's in these groves of trees. We know where he's at. Saul says, hey, go back. Find him. Figure out, because he's a real sneaky guy. Find out where he's at, what he's doing. Come back, and when I come down, tell me, and we'll, we'll capture him. David finds out. David and his men leave. They go down toward Maon, or Maon, however you'd like to say it, just a little bit south there. They spend some time there. 
Uh, and then they're going to, when Saul starts to press, they're going to head up toward Engedi. And they're going to head up toward this area where Engedi is. It's an oasis in the middle of the desert. It's a very a popular place. Even to this day, you can Google it and you can see David's waterfall. They have a number of things named after David right at this oasis in the midst of the wilderness. And you can see the picture. This is a picture of the oasis at Engedi. You can see the wilderness all around. You can see the potential of where David could climb in the cliffs and in the rocks and in the caves and how he could be on one side of the mountain. You couldn't see him if you were on the other side. But he finds time, uh, just this, this short oasis uh, in the midst of all the difficulty because Saul, if you remember, Saul heads back toward Philistia, ends up there because the Philistines are attacking back in Israel. God does it. It's, it's obviously something God is doing where God is protecting his, his chosen one, David. And so David is at the point where he's able to go and dwell in the strongholds of En take some time, get in a little bit of an oasis in his own personal life. But then in Psalm 24, verse 1, Saul's going to come right back at it. It says, Saul returned after following the Philistines, and it was told him, David is now in the wilderness of En So he's in this area of En He's hiding out. He's going from cave to cave, finding the strongholds, finding the place of refuge. And uh, again, Saul is going to pursue him, pursue him. This is where David's going to spare Saul's life the first time, has the opportunity when Saul goes in to relieve himself in the cave. David spares Saul's life. And at this point, Saul says, please don't, don't destroy my family name. So there's a little bit of a break, and David finds his way back to the wilderness of Ziph. Again, later on, after Saul gives him a little bit, he spends some time uh, in Maon. Uh, chapter 25, in fact, is uh, you see that he goes toward an individual there by the name of Nabal. And Nabal, it says that he's in the, in the area of Maon. So that's where David's going to hang out for a little bit here. And the whole situation that occurs with Nabal and Abigail and David and the potential war that's about to occur in Abigail and her righteousness and her wisdom thwarts that. And uh, so that happens. But then the Ziphites, again, stirring the pot, going back. They go back to Saul again, chapter 26, and say, hey, David's back. David's in this area. Come and get him, Saul. So Saul's going to make that pursuit again. He's going to head toward him. And David finally, after David spares his life that second time, you get down to the end of uh, chapter 26. And in uh, chapter 27, David's actually going to look and say something to the point of, David said in his heart, I shall now perish one day by the hand of Saul. He's like, there's just no way around this. This guy is not going to stop until I am dead. And so David looks and says, I'm going to get out. And he flees again back to Philistia. This time he's going to, he's going to uh, do it. And you can read the the following chapters that ensue. Uh, Achish allows him to live there. Achish believes that David is actually going to be fighting on his behalf. That Remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about the warriors that have been disgraced. Uh, this sort of, Achish sort of believes that David is doing it. But if you actually do the historical study, all the towns that David goes to, and is driving out. He's actually driving Canaanites out of the land of Judah. So he's fulfilling what the initial responsibilities of uh, the the Israelites were to drive the, the pagans and drive the Canaanites out. So he's actually doing what he's supposed to be doing, but he's doing it under the guise of being a, a Philistine. And we won't get into all of that because it doesn't pertain to our class. And uh, that's, that's where we're at. But So David flees to, to Philistia. Now, what I'd like to do is spend just a few moments today. 
and look at some of the wisdom we can glean from the wilderness. David spends all this time. Now, we don't know exactly how long, months, years. Uh, we know that it's a difficult time for David. On the run, abandoned, rejected, uh, he's been betrayed. All these different things are happening to David in this time period. So what are some truths that, that we can glean uh, from this? So let's look at that. First of all, even in God's plans, there will be difficulties in life. Uh, in Psalm, or 1 Samuel 22, all of these will be 1 Samuel, uh, chapter 22, verse 5. Do you remember? He's in Moab, and the prophet Gad says, Abide not in the hold, uh, the hold in Moab. Depart, get thee to the land of Judah. So David departs, and he, and he heads that way. Chapter 23, uh, he's again, he's going he's gonna to be seeking after God's wisdom. And it talks about, you can look through all those verses, 1 through 9, the numbers of times when he's consulting Abiathar, he's consulting God. It says he inquired of the Lord, he inquired of the Lord. And so he's doing what God wants. He goes after Keilah, and yet in the midst of that, he experiences betrayal. So David is continually doing what God wants him to do at this point in his life in the wilderness. And yet he's still experiencing difficulties, just like many people in our lives and we, we experience that. You say, oh man, I'm doing right, God. I'm doing what, what you want me to do. And yet here come some of the difficulties in lives. Believers' lives, and, and most of you here are well aware, we are not free. We're not a, given a guarantee to never have difficulties, but we do have a God who gets us through difficulties. And that's where David focuses uh, in his times. Uh, another thing I uh, personally, just as I was walking through it, when I'm sure uneasy about what to do, don't forget to personally inquire of the Lord. David's doing that. Psalm 20, or 1 Samuel 23, uh, verse 2, it says that David, uh, David inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I go smite these Philistines? I'm not sure. Should I go? Should I not go? Should I head up to Keilah? These are my brethren. Should I do that? Yes, no. Verse 4, um, he, gets, he gets the same thing, where David inquired of the Lord yet again. And I, I thought about this because there was, I've had a couple situations through the years where someone will come to me and, and they'll say, hey, would you pray for this? I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I need wisdom. I need wisdom. And then I'll go back and I'll talk with them and say, well, have you been praying about it? And they're like, well, no, I asked you to pray for it. It's like, well, wait, you have a responsibility too. You're not sure. It's not just something you ask other people to pray for, but we need to be personally inquiring of the Lord. An interesting thought, and this, this challenged me is in, in a leadership position, is that even when you're convinced of what God wants you to do, I still need to listen to the concerns of others, especially those close to me, and be willing to revisit this conversation with the Lord. In that situation where David's like, should I go to Keilah, should I not? David inquires of the Lord, verse 2, Samuel 23, and the Lord says, go, smite the Philistines, save Keilah. But then verse 3, so, so David's convinced of it. He knows what God has said. David's men said to him, Behold, we're afraid of uh, here in Judah. How much more if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? So verse 4 then, David is willing, he goes back to the Lord. He says, God, I just want to make sure I got this right. I want to make sure my, my men are uh, concerned, they're scared. And he inquires yet again of the Lord. And he answered and he said, Okay, we are going to arise. We are going to go down to Phil and take, deliver from the Philistines' hands. And just making sure, there are times in our lives we're convinced, you know, and maybe our wife comes to us or our husband will come to you and, and they'll be like, are you sure about this? Well, yes, I'm sure. I've made the decision and I know this is what God wants. 
but to be willing to hear the concerns. David could have looked at his men and go, hello, I'm speaking to God. I'm on behalf of God. I'm telling you what to do. Let's march. And there are times that that happens. But in this case, I think David highlights a true concern to say, hey, I, I, it's not bad. It's not, it's not a lack of faith at this point for David to go back to the Lord and say, I just, I want to make sure this is what you want me to do, Lord. I want, I want uh, security. I want surety. And that's why he also, in this passage, he's going he's gonna to seek the help of others. He's in the midst of his own difficulty and depression he, and abandonment. He's going to seek to help others. And then one of the ones we're coming up, well, he, he seeks the wisdom of others. But this truth is, is challenging for me. And I know for some of you, you've shared that it's challenging for you. That when you are depressed, when you are discouraged, when you feel alone, when you feel abandoned, you want everybody to come and minister to you. And at times we need that. But also in the midst of that, we should be looking for the opportunities to be ministering to other people, to say, how can I help? And that's what David does. He does it with his family. He does it in Keilah. He goes, he's discouraged, he's abandoned. There's, there's a whole nother, there's an interesting dynamic that I was really, uh, I never put it together. And this is just, um, if you go down to chapter 25, at the end of chapter 25, uh, to add to the difficulties in David's life. Okay, so he's on the run from Saul. He's being betrayed. He's, he's feeling abandoned. And the very last verse gives this insight that I personally never noticed in the life of David. It says here that Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Faulty, the son of Laish, which was at Galim. And it just, it just leaves it there. But David, David would have found this out. David would have known. Basically, what had happened at this point in David's life is through, through circumstances, whether it was Saul and Michael looking and saying, David has abandoned the faith, he's become a traitor to the nation. David ends up in a situation where his wife divorces him. There, there, is, there is no way around the fact that he's, she's now with another man married to this other man, no longer the wife of David. And it wasn't, it wasn't just an arranged marriage with David and Michael where they never saw each other. There was, remember, she was in, they were in the bedroom together. They were there when they're letting Michael down or letting David down. So there is a, there is a dynamic here where David added on to all of the other discouraging things, the depressing things. He finds out in here, somewhere in this whole concept that time of, of happenings, his wife's gone. He's been abandoned there too. And yet in the midst of all of that, he's willing to say, I'm going to help others. He seeks the spiritual leader, leadership in, in difficult times to look for godly individuals who are going to say, hey, how can I help? To look at it, and, and not just spiritual leaders in the sense of just your pastor's, but to look to other leaders, other people in the church who are, who are godly and are spiritual and will help give you wisdom. He does that multiple times with Abiathar. He goes to Abiathar and says, hey, what about this? Hey, what about this? Can you inquire of the Lord for me? I need direction. And he does that even with Samuel before Samuel dies. And he's, he's constantly in his life looking to spiritual leadership from different individuals. He's willingly then, he willingly follows godly wisdom. You can look through all those verses where he's told to do something and David goes and does it right away. 
David goes and does it. David goes and does it. It's not a, okay, I get wisdom from somebody who gives me good, sound, biblical, godly wisdom. And I'm like, yeah, I don't want that. I don't need that. I'll, I'll figure it out myself. But he willingly follows through. He, uh, remember when Jonathan comes to minister, Jonathan finds him. It's, it would be easy to just look, no, I'm fine. Just, you know, go, go back with your dad and just stay away. I don't need help right now. But if someone reaches out to you in the midst of your dry wilderness experience, the difficulties you're going through, allow them to reach out. Don't block them out. Don't say, no, no, I'm fine. But allow them in. If they're going to be willing to come and try and minister to you, allow them to minister. Spend that time. Share a little bit. You may not share everything, but share. Ask for help. Ask for prayer. Spend some time together in those areas. Interesting part in 1 Samuel 23. Um, just because somebody invokes the name of the Lord does not mean and does not ensure that the individual is a righteous individual. Remember, this is where the Ziphites come to Saul. They tell Saul, and he says in verse 21, And Saul said, Blessed be you of the Lord, for you have compassion on me. He's like, man, the Lord is blessing you for betraying his righteous, his righteous future king. The Lord is going to bless you because you have come to me. And Saul is not in the place to be granting that blessing. And just because he invokes the name of the Lord does not mean that he's the righteous individual. And we have to be careful of that. Just because somebody says, well, this is in the name of the Lord, we still have the responsibility to compare Scripture with Scripture, to still look and say, wait, is this what God is saying? And look at those truths and make sure that they're righteous. And, and we know that. Just, just because someone may sit in the pews next to us does not mean that they are righteous before the Lord. And so we need to, we need to be wise in those areas. Use the oases. Or, I, that's one I should have just, I kept trying to figure out which way to, is, it, is that correct or not? Anyway, use the oases or the oases of life. I don't know if I spelled it right or not. Uh, which God provides to refresh you for other difficulties that will arise, which it almost seems discouraging because we like getting to those oases of life. We like those, those respites. We don't like to think that, okay, this may be because there's something coming in the future. But looking like David at En Gedi, using that time to refresh, using those moments when Saul has to go away that God has provided because Saul Brought, or God brought the Philistines, so Saul has to leave. Now David's able to use those times to refresh, to write, to reflect on the Psalms, to reflect on his God, to refresh him so that in those new difficulties, when they arise, he's prepared for them. One of the things that, that challenged me, just because I can do something does not mean I should do something. Multiple times with David, the two different times, David, take his life. The Lord has delivered Saul into your hand. I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed. David, he's sleeping. He did have no clue that you're here. The Lord's delivered him. He's like, I could do that, but I'm not going to do it. And there are times in our life, just because we can do something does not mean we should. We ought to take the bigger perspective, take a, take a step back, look and say, wait, is this truly what God wants me to do? And if I do that, what are the potential consequences? What does this lead to? You know, if David takes Saul's life, how does that impact? Sure, now the king is dead, but now we've just taken one, you know, one tyrant and we've replaced him with an assassin who's just taken his life. Why do I want to follow? He allows God to work. He says, the Lord, the Lord will take care of Saul. The Lord will do that. And he had that right perspective. So just because I can do something 
doesn't mean I should do something. And probably for me, the, the biggest overarching truth from this section of Scripture that really challenged me in the whole context of our study is take extra time to reflect. During these wilderness moments, take extra time to reflect upon God's person, His power, His plans, and the work and works in our hard times. What I mean by that is this. Have you noticed the numbers of Psalms? I think we're up to six now. That David writes during his wilderness experiences. During the time he's on the run. During the time he's in difficulty. He still finds time to reflect on God. I don't do that. I find myself trying to figure it out in my human perspective. In my own wisdom. And sure, I'll I'll read scripture. But the amount of time to sit down and to pen words, to actually write some poetry. Now, David, David had that gift. He had that ability to write poetry. Some of you have that ability. But the time to sit down and truly think through what he's going to write. And some of these, some of these psalms aren't just like the, the three-verse psalms. They're 11, 12, 15. Uh, next week or two weeks when we cover the last one in this, in this time period. It's 50 verses. It's a, it's a lot. David took time to write and reflect in the midst of chaos. A guy hunting him down. A wife leaving him. Men betraying him. Fellow friends betraying him. All of those things happening. He says, I need to reflect on God. I need to reflect on him in these difficult times. And I believe we do too. So when we look at Psalm 63, it's, it's given in this time period it says, when David was in the wilderness in Judah. Now, as we, as we look at that, as we look and say, okay, wait, what, what is, what's the background here? What's the story of it? This psalm is one that the, the trust, it's a psalm of trust that presupposes God's deliverance. But it's not from one specific experience. It's not just the moment in the wilderness when this happened. He says, it's from my time in the wilderness. It is his reflection back on the time in the wilderness. It's David looking back and saying, God has delivered me. God is, God is protecting me. God is caring for me. And what am I going to do as a response to his deliverance? Now, the question that comes up, so what's the story of the psalm? We're talking about the psalms and their stories. What is the history of this? There is a difficulty on that one. And uh, I'll share a couple of these things with you, and I'll show, tell you where I'm at. So is it, if, if there's one of two passages, it's either going to be this, the passage of 1 Samuel 22 through 26, or where Saul is chasing David through the wilderness in Judah, or it's going to be in 2 Samuel 15, where you're going to have uh, Absalom is going to be revolting. Remember, David's son revolts. David flees to the wilderness of Judah. Now, which one is it? Here, here, commentators are split pretty much 50-50 right down the road. Some are going to say it's this time when Saul's chasing him. Others are going to say it's Absalom's revolt. Here's, here's some of the reasons why they say it. They say Saul is chasing David. If they're taking that, they say most people, even at this point, recognize David's kingship. Now, why is that a big deal? Let's go over to Psalm 63. In Psalm 63, at the end of the psalm, verse 11 David says, but the king. He refers to himself in the third person as the king. 
He says, you know, but, you know, this guy. He says, but the king shall rejoice in God. So people are recognizing David as king. They would argue, those who are arguing for 1 Samuel 22 to 26 say, well, everybody, Saul's already even said it. He's like, I know you're going to be king. I know that it's going to do well. Jonathan has already devoted himself to the, the kingship of David. The Philistines are already saying, isn't this the king of David? Everybody in the area is already calling David the king. So for David to call himself the king, it's not arrogant. It's just him speaking that you need to identify with me and God's program and the direction God's heading. Whereas people who take 2 Samuel 15 and 16, they're going to look and say, David, at this moment in 2 Samuel, he is the king. Those are, though, though there's the revolt by Absalom to overthrow his father, David is the king. So for him to say, I am the king, that's the case. One of the things that a number of people bring up is, would the king actually take a night watch? Now, David's a unique example. He may have. It's more of an argument from silence. But what it talks about in, the, in Psalm 63 it talks about that he remembers, he meditates, verse 6, on the in-the-night watches, the, the guard times, when everybody else is, you know, we're all trying to get some rest, and you're out, on, you're out on the night watches. Why would you, the argument is, why would you send your king, the one you're trying to protect, out on a night watch? There's a revolt. There are people looking, in the Absalom case, they're looking to kill David. Why would you send him out to do night watches? Well, it's David. I mean, he could be a bear. He could be a lion. He could be a giant. He's, he's able to defend himself. But you could go either way. So the people are split on that. Uh, the, some of the words that are used. In verse 1 and 2, there's the idea of the, the dry and thirsty land. Or the, my soul thirsts for thee. My flesh longs for thee in a dry and thirsty land. In Second Samuel sixteen fourteen, it says that David and his men came in from the wilderness thirsty and dry, weary, the the word there, same word that's being used. So they say, see, it's the same word that's used there as it's used in the psalm and in 2 Samuel. So it has to be this this situation. But on the flip side, people talk about in verse 4 that he is going to find comfort. He says, I will lift up my hands in thy name. And we just studied last week where David invokes the name of the Lord, where he's constantly focused on that and the, the concept of the names coming up. Saul doesn't want his name put out and the calling of the name of the Lord. So it's like, all right, there's, there's good argument on that side. There's also in the, in the whole thing, some will argue, look and say, well, Psalm 3 specifically, David says specifically, this is the situation that comes out of the revolt of Absalom. So they say that refers to, to that situation, the revolt of Absalom. 63 refers to the time in Judah. And the tone of Psalm 63 is much more positive. Most commentators, many commentators who hold to 1 Samuel 22 say the tone is too positive for the revolt of a son. Now, where am I at on this whole thing? I am, I am personally at... 5149, leaning toward 1 Samuel 22 through 26. Uh, I think that there's a couple things in there with the name, with the uh, Psalm 3, the tone. Uh, even, even the idea of he talks about at the end about those who are speaking lies will be put to silence. Multiple times in the first Samuel, he talks about the Ziphites are lying against me. He talks about the people who are with you are lying against me. The, the men of the city are lying against me. And so they seem to be uh, revolting through their words, through their speech. And he's like, they're going to be put to silence. But I have to be honest, I, you know, commentators are 50-50 on 51-49. It could be either one. 
but it still highlights the truth that David in the midst of a wilderness, he's going to, he's going to bring some great truth out. So what does David do? How do we, let's take Psalm 63 for the rest of our time. Let's, let's just work through the passage and, and pull some truths that we can learn in the midst of the wilderness. In a time of potential discouragement, in the wilderness, and the wilderness often refers to those times of difficulties, discouragement, struggles, David was excited about God. Instead of complaining, as we often do, as we find ourselves in the midst of struggles, complaining, David is going to sing praises to the Lord. He takes us from the wilderness into worship. He's going to say, I'm not going to, I'm not going to make, I'm making a choice not to just stay here and focus on my circumstances, but I'm going to turn, I'm going to look up, and I'm going to give praise to the one who is going to deliver me or has delivered me in the past through these circumstances. So he's the one I will worship, I will give praise to. This is a very personal psalm. David pulls back. He allows you to see his heart. He says, this is, this is where I'm at. This is me. This is what I'm feeling. In fact, in, the, in this psalm, my soul comes up four different times. The word my, 12 times. The word I, seven different times. There, there are multiple aspects. The only one that is much more personal, it seems, in the psalms is Psalm 51, when we'll get to David's repentance uh, dealing in the situation with Bathsheba. But in this case, he's in a very personal place. He's like, this is, this is me. I've been through some difficult times. I've been through some hard times. But this is my personal uh, position of where I'm at now with God. So we look at Psalm 63. And let's just, let's just take some time and go through and take some truths so we can fill in here. David is going to yearn for fellowship with God, with the true God. He's like, Oh God, thou art my God. Now the, the phrasing there, it's, it's El, you are my Elohim. And most commentators look and say, that idea is David just not being redundant, but he's saying, God, you are the true God. You are my personal God. You are, it's, it's equivalent to saying Jehovah without saying Jehovah in this situation. So he's looking and saying, you are my God. He makes this very personal, very emphatic. His body is aching for fellowship with God. He's like, I want this. I'm, I'm in the throes of difficulty, but I want my fellowship with you. His eagerness drives him to search for godly wisdom. Oh God, you are my God. In earnest, I will seek you. Or it's uh, my early, I will seek you. That idea of early has the idea of an earnest desire to get up, to say, this is the priority in my life. I want to seek you. I want your wisdom. I want your truth. I want fellowship with you. So he drives for that. As an exhausted wanderer, David is thirsty for God. And he uses the picture of the wilderness, of that dry, arid desert where he's longing for water. He says, I will seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you. It's aching for you in this dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So he uses this this picture of saying in in the, the deserts of life, When I feel parched, when I feel spiritually abandoned, I want you, God. Just like I want that water. When my tongue is swollen and my my mouth is pasty because I need liquid and all I will do, I will run as fast as I can to find water. He's like, that's what I'm going to do in the midst of my wilderness, God. I am running to you. I want my fellowship with you. He continues on then in verse number two. He says, to see thy power and thy glory so as I have seen already thee in the sanctuary. 
The idea of the sanctuary, the place where the Ark of the Covenant rests, the place where there is the presence of God, where the power of God has been evidenced, where David has been able to see. Now remember, there's not a temple at this point, but the the Ark would be present in the tabernacle. Sometimes it would be moved around, but David has seen the power of God in, in in his places of worship. David is going to take time to recollect the past works and words of God, and he longs to get back to corporate worship, the time in the sanctuary where he was around, where he would see God, where he spent that time, and he is observing, he wants the, the power and the glory, or God's splendid glory. He says, I've seen it, and I long to get back to it. Some of you have been there, you, you get away, work takes you away, and you're not able to be here and spend time in fellowship with God's people. You're away, and after a while you're like, oh, it is just so refreshing to get back to worshiping God with my family here at church. That's where David is driving to. He's saying, I, I've seen you in the sanctuary. I want to get there. I want that. Because really, our regular worship, that prepares us for the crises of life. Our regular and consistent time here, that prepares us. Our regular and consistent time personally worshiping God prepares us for those difficult times that we end up facing. And then he goes on in verse number three. David's worship and devotion have made him well aware of God's loving kindness. He says, I want to see you in the sanctuary again. I want that time. Why do I, I long to see your splendid glory? Because I know this. Your loving kindness is better than life. Which is a dramatic statement for somebody who, whether facing a revolt from a son who's trying to kill him, or running through the wilderness because he's got a former father-in-law who's trying to kill him, and a king who's trying to kill him, and he's, he's trying to keep his life. His life is precious. That's what he's doing in the wilderness. He's running to stay alive. And he's like, far greater than even my life right now is knowing, God, that you care for me. You have not abandoned me. You are protecting me. You are precious to me. You will provide. He says, that's better than anything in life is knowing that God's, and the word he uses here is his covenant faithfulness, his covenant love, that he has made these promises to David and David knows that God is going to keep them. He clings to the promises and the truth of God and who God is. David's perspective on life is very evident in this verse. He says, God's faithful love is better than life. It's, it's bigger than just me. It's about God. And he highlights that David commits to glorifying God because David knows whom he has believed and is persuaded that he is able to keep them which has, he has delivered. Now, that's from the song. But it just it's, it fit when I looked at the verse. Because your, your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. The word is to glorify thee, to bring honor to you. That's what I want to do, even in the midst of my difficulty. David says, this is who I am. I'm somebody who's going to glorify God, knowing that he will deliver me, persuaded that he is able to keep me through all these difficulties. I'm going to glorify God. I'm going to praise him. But David seeks more than just that self-deliverance. He's not just looking to say, just get me out of the crises, God. He's saying, I want to glorify you through these crises. My lips will glorify you. I want to do it through the crises, after the crises, in the future when I face difficulties, my lips will praise you. In fact, he's going to make that commitment here in verse 4. He's going to follow it up and he's saying, it's not just right now for the deliverance, 
verse 4, he says, even if I endure adversity for the rest of my life, he says, my lips, thus I will bless thee while I live. He's like, wherever I'm at, God, while I'm still alive, if I face all these adversities, if I face all these difficulties, I am committing to praising you and trusting in you. He's like, I will bless you while I'm living with, with my hands held high. My, my praises are, I'm going to give in thy name. So like, I will lift up my hands in your name. The empty uplifted hands has this idea, the perspective of there is nothing I'm bringing to God, but yet I'm sitting there waiting in prayer and asking God to fulfill my hands and to, to load me with his blessings. I bring nothing to you, God, but I long for your blessings. I long for your desires. I long for you to deliver and to work in my wilderness, in my struggles. And he does this, he's able to do that because it goes back to that idea that he's been talking about in few previous Psalms and in the, in the, the text in Samuel. He's saying, I, I'm trusting in the name of the Lord. He's like, I will bless you in the name of the Lord. The ground of his, the, the hope, the trust that he has, the, the stability that he has is grounded in who God is. His mercy, his kindness, his justness, his, his loving kindness, his covenant faithfulness. He's, he's grounded in the fact that God is omniscient. He's well aware. He's powerful. He, he grounds himself in the truth of God so that he can endure those difficult times. And so we, we, we have to come before God saying, God, I have nothing to offer in this situation. I don't know where else to go, but I know you do. And I'm asking for your wisdom. I'm asking for your deliverance. I'm asking for your guidance. Whatever it may be, God, I'm, I'm, coming, I'm coming with open hands to you. And that is David's heart. It's like, I can't turn. Where do I turn? Everywhere I turn, people are, are, are betraying me. They're leaving me abandoned. And he, and he highlights that. And he, he goes on in verse number five. Um, one of, the, one of those great verses. He says, my soul shall be satisfied with marrow and fatness. And he, he talks about this. The, he says, my thirsting soul. He goes back to my soul. The, the soul that was thirsting, up in verse number um, one, he says, my soul to thirst for thee. Now he comes back, verse five, and he says, my soul, it's going to be satisfied. In your abundant provisions, God. Now remember, the fat, the marrow, <clears throat> Those were things that belonged to the Lord. Leviticus 3, 16, 7, 23, both say the fat belonged to the Lord. When a sacrifice, what you were going to eat, what you would take, the, they would take the fattiest parts, the, the choicest cuts of meat, that belonged to the Lord. And yet David looks and says, the things that belong to God, he's going to satisfy me with even his greatest things. He says with the marrow, with the fatness. I know in our, our culture, we, we you know, despise the fat. We, we get rid of the fat things and we go fat-free in all of our diets. Or maybe you do, I don't. But some do. And I love marrow, by the way. If, if anybody ever wants to try it, let me know. I'll, I'll, I'll teach you how to make it. And it's really yummy. Uh, the calorie content's insane, but uh, it's, it's really good. And I know some of you are completely grossed out now. That's okay. Um, but... We, we repulse that, but yet those choice things were belong to God. And, and David is saying, that is what's going to satisfy me. That is what is going to, to give me blessings, the thing that God has given me. And his response, again, David's attitude of praise is revealed because he says, I'm not just going to praise. 
He says, oh, I don't feel like singing, so I'm not going to sing. I'm in the midst of, of difficulty. I'm not going to sing. I'm in the midst of abandonment. I'm not going to rejoice. But in the midst of all of those difficult things, he says, with my mouth shall praise with joyful lips. He says, not only are my lips going to, to sing, but there's going to be an attitude of joy. There's going to be a kind, uh, an excitement, uh, a, a worth that says, you are, you are great. And you can get me through these, and I know you will satisfy me. And I'm going to do it with these joyful lips, even when I don't feel like singing. And I, I'm sure I'm not the only one that there are times you sit in the pews, and there are times we can't sing because the words just overwhelm us because of the situations we're in. But there are times that we choose, I don't, I don't feel like singing right now to God. And yet, do I have that heart attitude of David that says, I'm in the difficult throes of life, and I need to sing. I need to rejoice and praise my God who will satisfy and meet and deliver me. Verse number six, he keeps going on in the passage. David's going to take personal time, uh, personal and private times to focus on God's past activities in order to draw comfort. He says, when I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in my night watches. So the idea of remember is to recall what has been done or said in the past and to apply it to the future. So David in the nighttime, maybe when he can't sleep, maybe when he's wondering if anybody's over his shoulder trying to, trying to kill him, whatever it is, he, he's there at night, he's resting in these private times, and he's recalling how God has delivered, how God has worked. And then he says he meditates on the good things of God throughout the night. Now there are, there are three different Hebrew culture, three different night watches. There was sunset to 10, 10 to 2, and then 2 to sunrise. Whatever, the, maybe it's he's up all night and it's talking about during the, the whole e- the evening that I can't sleep, I'm going to spend focused and remembering and reflecting on you. That could be, we've been there. You, you have those nights where you cannot sleep because of difficulties, because of hardship, because of pain, suffering, depression. He says, I'm going to, I'm going to meditate. Maybe it's waking up in the middle of the night, but whatever it is, I mean, even, even you think about that perspective. If he's taking the night watch, knowing that Saul is there and he's doing it so his men can get some rest and he's watching, he's walking around. And in the midst of doing this, not just like looking behind every rock, waiting to see what's going to happen, but you can picture him walking, being vigilant, but yet at the same time saying, God, you're great. You've, you've protected me. You're going to protect me right now. Even when I can't see 20 yards in front of me, you're still going to protect me. You're a great God. To maybe in, the, in that night watch, and all of a sudden the sun's rising up, and it's like, you know what, God? I see your splendid glory coming up, and I'm going to seek you right now, early in the morning when the sun's rising. You can get that perspective of David having this desire to recall and remember God's goodness, even through the nights when he, he's not sleeping. He goes on, he says, how can I do this? How can I remember? How can I focus on this? He says, verse 7, I can do that because of this, because you've been my help. Therefore, in the shadow of your wings will I rejoice. David says, I can focus on your greatness. I can focus because you have helped. You have delivered. You have helped. And I can recall and remember those things. So he rejoices again in the past protection, uh, the past and the present protection of God. That picture of the the, the, the hen caring, caring for his, the chicks, bring him under the wing. It highlights the, the wings of comfort, the fellowship, the protection that is offered there. 
And what's, what's interesting in, in that, that whole aspect is, it's almost like this is the invitation of God saying, I'm here to protect. I'm here to comfort. How will you respond? Will you run to me? Will you find comfort? What will you do or will you, will you run away? And David's response to that comes in verse number 8. He says, my soul follows hard after thee. Or some of your translations may have, my soul clings to you. It's actually the same word that's used of Ruth when she makes the decision to hold fast and to follow after her mother-in-law and saying, I'm going to turn from the, the gods of Moab and, and my ways in Moab, and I'm going to hold to Jehovah, and I'm going to follow after. It's the same word that David uses here, that I'm going to cling. It's, it's my thirsty soul, though it's satisfied. It's going to devote, be devoted to God. He says, my soul, again, there it is, that my soul coming up. So my thirsty soul that has been satisfied in God now comes in in verse number eight and he says, that soul that has been satisfied in you time and time again in the past, I'm going to continue to follow after you. Even in these hard times, even when things aren't making sense, even when I'm depressed, I'm going to cling to God. And he makes that, he makes that commitment. And he says, I can do that because your, uh, your right hand, you're the powerful provider, the strength, the, the symbol of power. The right hand is going to uphold the devoted. He says, I'm going to follow after you because I know that your right hand will uphold me. I don't know how. I don't know how you're going to get Saul off my back. I don't know maybe if it's Absalom. I don't know how you're going to stop this revolt. You may be looking and saying, I don't know how I'm going to get through these cancer treatments. I don't know how I'm going to get through this financial crisis that doesn't make any sense to me right now in my, my life. I don't know how I'm going to get through the, the marriage difficulties we're having. I don't know how I'm going to battle with the depression that I'm facing because of circumstances or things that have happened. I don't know how, but I know this. God, you're able to deliver me and your right hand is powerful and I'm going to place myself there and I'm going to stay devoted to you. Though at times I want to walk away, I'm going to stay committed to you because you are the one. If I cling to you, you will help. You will bring me through. And David's devotion to that guides him and directs him. And he gets to the point in verse number nine, he's so committed to that truth that God is going to uphold him. God is going to deliver the ones who are devoted and are satisfied in him. That he looks and he looks at his enemies again. And the two verses he talks about, then shall they fall by the sword and they shall be portions for the foxes. Uh, Verse nine, sorry, starts it off. But those that seek my soul, the one that's following after God, the one that's satisfied with God, the one that thirsts for God, those that are coming after me, and I know right now I'm righteous, I'm doing what God wants me to do, I'm living the way God wants me to do. He says, those that come after my soul to destroy it, to wipe it out, to obliterate it, he says, they're going to go into the lower parts of the earth. A, a euphemism for the idea of they're going to die that they're going to die, not even just die, they'll die by the sword which they're using to come after me. And he says that they're going to be left for the jackals, for the foxes that are there, which in Jewish culture, that idea of that unburied body, that it would be left out in the field, not taken care of through proper burial, and that it was just going to be given to an unclean animal to come in and, and just rip it to shreds. That's just, it, it's, it's unfathomable to that Jewish mindset. It's like the ultimate death for your enemy. Disgraceful death. And that's what David's saying. You guys are so far against what God is planning to do. You guys are seeking to revolt against what God has set up 
They're well aware that God has now anointed David to be king of Israel. And yet they're still rebelling against that. And they're finding themselves in misery and demise, which I think for us, if we find ourselves continually revolting against what God has said, what God desires, what God wants, we look down the road and we say, wait a second, what is the demise for the person who continues down that path? It's not good. But David says, that's not me. That's not me. My soul clings and is satisfied in the true God who is able to deliver me and to keep me and to get me through all of it. And he he sums it up in verse 11. He sees that the divine justice of God is going to give hope for the rejoicing. And he comes back. This is a theme that has been going through all of these Psalms. That I may not experience all of the, the justice I want right now, but I know in the end, in the scope of eternity, God's going to take care of this. God will see the righteous exalted. He will take care of the unrighteous. And so he says in verse 11, he says, but the king shall rejoice in God and everyone that swears by him, they shall glory. Those who are following after God's plan here for what God has and identifying with David and identifying with his kingship. But the mouth of them that speak lies, which he's highlighted multiple times in first Samuel speaking lies, they will be cut off. They will be caused to cease. Deliverance is not, simply re- uh, is not simply redemption from evil. David's not saying, I just want to get out of this. But it's also a redemption to a life of fellowship and enjoyment of God's kindness. That's what David highlights here. He's not just looking and saying, Okay, God, I'm following after you so you can sick my enemies and you can do that. Did you notice? Did you notice in the, uh, the and he doesn't rejoice, the king, verse 11, he doesn't rejoice in the demise of his enemies, but rather he rejoices in his God who takes care of his enemies. He rejoices in the God who satisfies him. He rejoices in the God who he thirsts after. He rejoices in in God himself, not in the demise of his enemies. I believe David many times was broken over what had to happen to these individuals who kept rebelling against him. But yet in this case, he says, I rejoice in God. He says, I don't want to just be redeemed from the deliverance. I want to be redeemed to have this fellowship restored. I want to be redeemed to the point where I am delivered so that I can experience the goodness of my great God, so that I can have this wonderful fellowship and time of enjoyment with him. That's what David longs for. He wants it in the midst of all those wildernesses and all that time, potentially multiple years of running abandonment, depression, struggles, difficulties. He says, despite all that and all of those difficulties, I'm going to look to God. And we face difficult times. We all have our own. You have different difficulties than I have. I have different difficulties than you have. We face those times. Some are emotional, some are physical, some are financial, some are marital, some are family relationships. Do we look past those circumstances, though as hard and difficult as that is, to really reflect on God, who he is, taking time to journal about our wonderful and amazing God, taking time to look and reflect on the attributes, to do some study in the Bible, to say, this is who my God is, and I'm going to rest in that. 
I hope that we'll take that time. Dig into the Psalms some more. Dig into the Word of God and say, who's my God? And how does that impact my life? Don't just know the truths about him, but really rest like David did in God. Thirst after him in our dry and weary times of difficulty.